0: Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, where we share knowledge, philosophies, wisdom and insight to help you on your journey in both sport and life. Introducing your host,
1: Rob Riles. Hello and welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast. Welcome along. It's Rob Riles welcoming you to another edition. Now in today's program, I'm going to uh, chat to somebody that I know extremely well, and uh, I'm delighted to be able to bring to you, and uh, I shall tell you all about it in a minute, but before I reveal the uh, name of the lady, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Uh, Maybe she'll put me right if any of this is wrong, but um, the lady I'm speaking to is called Amanda. She is an eminent and successful businesswoman, and she is an expert in the field of customer loyalty. Um, In 2023, Amanda was awarded a prestigious International Loyalty Personality of the Year Award uh, for her work and services in the industry. She is a loyalty awards judge, an experienced airline and retail executive. She is the founder and CEO of Truth, a leading global loyalty consultancy. She's also a media celebrity, keynote speaker and an author. She was educated in the UK at Loughborough University, where she was a very competitive tennis and netball player, and she continues her sporting journey, being an established Ironman triathlete and ultra-marathon runner, somebody who has completed numerous 90K Comrades ultra-marathon events in her beloved South Africa. Amanda recently suffered the loss of sight in her right eye, and subsequently set up her Blind Loyalty Trust to help others who suffer with similar conditions. She also has a a favorite contribution cause in addition to that, which is the Amy Foundation who offer programs which develop and empower youngsters from challenged and vulnerable communities in South Africa. Amanda lives in Cape Town and she uh, spends her free time with her amazing three children and husband, Theo. And the lady in question is Amanda Cramout and she happens to be also my sister. And I make no bones <laughs> about being happy that she's on. So, Amanda, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, wonderful! So special to be here. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for the introduction.
1: So, uh, for anybody who's listening, um, this isn't just about me uh, filling my boots with chatting to my family. Um, Amanda has all the qualities that we tend to migrate towards on leader, manager, coach, and uh, you'll find out as we go on, hopefully. But I want to ask her a few things. Um, we could start anywhere. But um, I'm going to start with one thing that is synonymous with MAND. And that is a little quote that goes something like, if it doesn't scare you, it's probably not worth doing. So um, that's about sums you up, MAND, yeah?
0: Yeah, so I can't take credit for that quote. It was given to me by a gentleman called David Noyes, who was a senior executive in British Airways when I was a less senior executive, and I went to ask his advice whether I should take one role or the other and he all he said was which one scares you and it was clear one of them really scared me which was to come to South Africa to lead the British Airways South Africa team and he went well there you go if it doesn't scare you it's not worth doing and I just think it's magic and I use it all the time with my kids and they I hope they take it in sometimes they want to ignore me because <laughs> not everyone wants to take the harder route but um yeah it's true right if it doesn't scare you then maybe it's a little bit too easy and it's just too much in our comfort zones but you know some days maybe we need the love and comfort of a comfort zone but other days we don't and it's the I guess the the genius in all of us that lacks some days or is there other days is to find which days you need to push that comfort zone and which days you sit comfortably within it
1: yeah so there's always a balance isn't it because uh being autobiographical last night i had a guilt trip because i came home i had a bar of chocolate and i went to bed early because uh, i had no energy um, <laughs> and you know what i had to deal with myself because i'm thinking you know what? I, this isn't this isn't the hero's journey this is like this is like you know but you're right sometimes you've got nothing left and uh, it's finding the right the right balance so look well, you've certainly engaged in things that are scary, man, in your life. I mean, um, it's hard to know where to start, but let's try and start at the beginning. Obviously, being siblings, we have a lot in common. Um, what do you think are the things that you had from your childhood that influenced what you've done in your life, um, good or bad?
0: You're on the spot, brother. Okay, so I think I was very privileged to... Grow up around my three brothers, and I'm not just saying that this isn't a self sort of gratification discussion because as a younger sister, you have no, no like sympathy anywhere from your brothers. It's like, get on with it, be mm. one of the lads, and get on with it. And our parents were just remarkable parents of that era, they just let us get on with it, they weren't molly, molly coddling us like I think most parents do today. And we got on with it and it made us tough, tough as nails. And I often talk to my kids around something called Northern Grit. So whilst we're from Stoke-on-Trent, we're not in the north of England, but I always remember I had the privilege of going to boarding school for my sixth form, which I did on a tennis scholarship and and netball, actually. I enjoyed netball there more than tennis. And I always remember the coach just taking me aside going, wow, you've got Northern Grit. And I think it's just grit, you know, like there's times when folks will stand up to grit, stand up and pull on that grit. And there's times when others will just go, it's just too hard. And I think if you see the success at the end of that grind, it makes it worthwhile next time when you question whether you're prepared to put in the effort. And I'm not going to take away the opportunity I had. You know, I'm not going to undermine the opportunity I had. I went to Millfield, which is an exceptional place. I went on a scholarship, as I say, for tennis. And during my holidays there, rather than like chill out in the summer holidays, I did stupid things like they had an exhibit expedition to the northern Himalayas to climb the Himalayas. I had never worn a pair of walking shoes. And I remember going to the interview, I was on crutches because I broke my ankle playing football, actually. (laughs) I was playing football for charity and this lad kicked me in the ankle and I broke my foot, missed the final England trial that I was up for. So my coach was really pissed off with me. And then I turned up to this interview on crutches to climb the Himalayas. And this guy just went, what are you doing? And I said, I just know I can do it. Let's get on with it. And he went, I love it. Let's do it. And I was part of this expedition and we climbed the Himalayas up to 20,000 feet. And then the following summer, I went on a three-month sail training ship, all self-funded. Like mum and dad didn't dig into their pockets for it because they couldn't. So I raised the cash. And I remember turning up and they said, so what sailing history have you got? And I said, absolutely none. And they just laughed and they said, okay, so how can you do it? And I said, because if you don't try, you're never going to get on with it. And I just don't, I honestly can't answer your question too deeply because I don't know where that came from other than Northern Grit. And that kind of those two episodes as a 17 year old and an 18 year old in Magapia year almost epitomize what I think if it doesn't scare you it's not worth doing means because I came out of both of those going that was a life-changing experience and that I think about that frequently when I sign up for Comrades which is the ultimate human race you know that is not easy and that scares me every time I'm on the start line but yeah it's worth doing but if it was easy everyone would do it and then it wouldn't be special.
1: Mm. Yeah, no. Um Three great examples. And uh, yeah, I, listen, um, anybody who listens to that who hasn't had the opportunity to go to the Himalayas or hasn't had the opportunity to sail, you know, not around the world, but, you know, sail for three months and, and all the rest of it will say, yeah, privilege, yeah, all that. But what we're looking at there are the lessons that led up to that. I, um, you know, how many people in that situation would go, oh, no, I broke my ankle, end of chat can't get on with it um never sailed before so you know it's not going to be for me um so as you say it's uh yeah forging experiences and it's how you look at it so um but yeah um
0: yeah and actually rob interesting on the on on both x on both the climbing the himalayas and the sail training trust me during those experiences because i was 17 and 18 i had weeks of regretting it weeks in the middle of it going why have i done this like i'm at altitude i can't breathe or I'm freezing cold and the food is disgusting or I'm and sailing. I was seasick for three weeks solid. Like it's just, it's not a pleasant experience, but you kind of, for whatever reason, and I think those are the things you push through. And I I, I was safe, as safe as you can be in a place like the Himalayas or on a boat. And um and gl- look, if you look back now, you can't even go to Kashmir. It's not it's not politically safe or stable to go. So thank goodness I did it when I could. Mm. But and back to your point about privilege. I mean, you know, our, our parents aren't. We're not from a wealthy background. So every penny was raised, which in a sense now gives you the ability to go you can actually do anything if you can put your mind to it appeal to i remember appealing to the press the local stoke on trent press to cover it and local stoke on trent companies sponsored both of those yeah. events and you make money by working three shifts a day and yeah you you can get there and i wish the young i said i don't want to be generational about this but sometimes i want to say to the younger generations like If there's a will, there's a way. I don't care what it is. There is always a way. Don't be put off. Don't think you can't afford to go to university if that's a a barrier. Don't think you can't do that experience because you can do three working shifts for a few months if you want it enough.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, three, as I say, three formative kind of experiences that uh, you're taking something out. Um, Yeah. And listen, how you're brought up forms forms your, your your vision of the world um you know i remember going to school like and i was getting myself dressed goodness knows because the teachers used to say to me like you know you, you wear that every day and i said and then and I, I think what they're on about like but <laughs> no, no but i can't ever really remember getting taught to get you know i used to you did we did ourselves didn't didn't we? we did you know and, and independence was like the buzzword otherwise well you, otherwise you're gonna sink you know so yeah um, absolutely just little things like that so look i, I know when you left uni that um you had a long and successful career as a i'll say the word executive and you can put me right on that and um when you worked for one of the most eminent companies in from in the uk that uh, british airways um so tell us a little bit about that because um not everybody's worked for british airways and um not everybody's uh done what you did in in, in the company because the, so there must be some some value in investigating that on your journey and what you got out of it and how 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 you look back on it now, man.
0: Yeah, so it was a really amazing 11 years career. Like I, I remember being at university and I remember doing a business course where I did a gap, uh, not a gap year, like I, they called it a sandwich year at university. So I went off and lived in France because I was doing business studies in French, lived as this student, like two of us in a room smaller than my current bathroom kind of thing. Like we just digged in, in Paris, what an experience. And we had absolutely no money. We just worked our butts off and spoke French and it helped us in our final year. And then I remember saying when, I don't know if you remember the milk round, but that used to be like all the corporate career companies used to come around or big institutions and come around and try and motivate you to join them post-university. So that doesn't seem to exist elsewhere in the world in the same way. And I don't know if it still exists in the UK, but I remember the milk round and I remember Mars company and GM and... um, three like loads of huge great companies and british airways used to do it and i remember saying there and then there's only one company i want to work for and it's british airways i don't know why i just knew i knew early and i know not everyone has this in the career i knew early what i wanted to do i always wanted to be in business and i was lucky enough to to secure a place on their graduate marketing program and there were 15 of us and it was a four-year program but what was so special about it is they immediately chucked you in at the deep end so it was proper corporate training it was um, comfort zone stuff presentation skills one of the best skills they ever gave me was when I was country manager in South Africa they gave me Sky News trained media training in case an aircraft ever went down you had to be the person on Sky News dealing with it and that was like immense training you can imagine because it's panic zone it's chaos it's, and that today even today like in the work I do that training has helped me enormously but what I do remember most about it is Within the first six weeks, I had the opportunity just to go and do the craziest projects, which if you aren't prepared to shove yourself out there, you couldn't do it. So some of us, there were 15 of us, some of us, some of the crowd would have gone for the, now I'll stay at home and I'll just do this project. And some of us put our hands up and a lot of folks on that course were like me and said, send me as far as you can. I want to do the cool stuff. And then I do remember the second proper job I had was country manager for, in Malawi for, for British Airways. And the irony is <laughs> PA had one flight a week. So people used to say, like, what the hell do you do all week? Like, there's only one flight. But you did everything. Like, you were trained to be what's called a load controller, which has equal legal liability for that flight taking off as a captain. You, I was trained to be a res agent, a reservations agent. I was trained to meet the government and negotiate the trading terms between Britain and Malawi. Um, so it was just the most immense experience. And I remember phoning dad when I got offered this job and I went, dad, I've got this job in Malawi. <laughs> Where's Malawi? <laughs> and I'd accepted a job. I didn't actually properly know where it was. It was ridiculous. I knew it was somewhere in Africa. And I took this and it was just the most special experience of my life. It was like, go in there and do, do what you got to do. Learn the, learn everything from dealing with government, dealing with upset passengers when an aircraft has gone technical and no one's got anywhere to go to sleep because the aircraft's stuck to learning to work with your team, like, but leading a team of um, young or old individuals who may have worked for the airline their whole, their whole life. And, in comes a 25-year-old from London. What the hell does she know? Um, it was a really humbling yet growing and inspirational experience. And that was Malawi. And then luckily, because of that, I went on to other roles. And, and the reason we laugh about Malawi, because it was one flight a week. I think the organization at IEBA used to send in graduates, because if you really stuff it up, how bad can it be? Like, <laughs> it's one flight a week. <laughs> it's not like 20 flights a day. So... So it's a safe training ground, and that's what it was. And then I did go on to then do, um, at a very young age, general manager of South Africa, which is was sort of like almost the highlight of my career with BA. And that was a significant station, because that was like the fifth most profitable route for the airline. And But that was after I'd grown a little bit and taken all those learnings. And hence my affiliation with South Africa, because I met The, my husband, and then eventually came back here to live. But yeah, the, all credit to British Airways. I have nothing but fond memories of working for that company. Uh, it taught me so much about leadership, and and again, that quote: "If it doesn't scare you, it's not worth doing." I mean, I didn't know where the hell Malawi was, but you just chuck your name in the hat and off you go.
1: Yeah. So the thing that stands out, man, and I try look, I try and um, enjoy the stories of everybody that's on the podcast because that's where the glory comes from. That's where the the great stuff. We're all we all get taught by stories. Well, the messages that stand out for me are like just you had the opportunity and the choice to jump in uh which carries on from the expeditions that and it's like getting at the deep end and do your learning and uh sink or swim and that's what stands out they give it a go you know um help to heck you know what the heck uh
0: yeah I, I just and I, I do I think we all like try and encourage our kids in a, in our own ethos in life. But as we know, our kids are our kids and they they will take their own journey in life. But I do encourage like just run towards everything, even if that means you stop because you've learned on the way that that's not for you. Just run towards it. It doesn't matter how bad the news is. Yeah. It's not going to disappear. If it's bad news, it's not going to disappear. You've got to handle it. So you know, so many of us hear bad news and want to run away, but bad news doesn't disappear. You've got to run towards it. You've got to handle shit, you know, so you can't, I think that's the big thing. And I think, you know, our mum taught a lot about that. Like, it's like you work hard, you know, to, I think we have very different parents and dad's got this very gentle and beautiful relationship approach to life, which I hope I take a lot from if I can. And mum's got this sheer guts and determination which i think i've definitely taken a big spoonful um and hopefully the combination of the two mm. can help help us in our in our journey mm. in life mm. we don't always get it right sometimes we get the combination of the two very different you know in the wrong uh, percentages and it doesn't get the right result but yeah 100%, um, yeah
1: yeah 100 yeah, No, i can recognize that and it's a good point um is going back to that balance issue of look, if you're at the bottom end of your energy levels and you're on a one out of 10, today's not the day to, um, start your new business or have that difficult conversation. But, um, you know, like you say, I can hold my hand up and say, I probably definitely reckon, recognize the tendency to be perfectionist and spend too much time preparing and reading and making sure I'm all hundred percent before I kind of jump into it instead of giving it a go, getting dirty and, um, learning that way. So, uh, I'm not saying be unprepared, but it's a balance, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think as I've got older, I'm a little bit more of the latter. I do, like, wing it a lot, which isn't always great. There's times when I afterwards regret it that I could have done better, I could have served our clients better, or I could have helped my kids better, or, you know, so I do tend, and maybe that's just because the mass volume of stuff we're dealing with every day, whether it's work, private, personal. Sometimes I feel I end up having to wing life way too much um and sometimes you can get away with it and it's a fine balance to know that and if you don't get it right to stop and self reflect you know i always say I, I always say to myself like when i clean my teeth tonight will i think i've done the best i could do and like you you mentioned about your chocolate bar like trust me i have a million nights when you just like it all falls down and you just kind of go give me a glass of wine and a bar of chocolate rather start than tomorrow,
1: start again tomorrow
0: start again tomorrow and that's okay it's okay, it's just not okay if that's every night, right and it is okay, and actually Han, who you know well your niece and my daughter, she said, mum, one of the things that she, you know she's really trying to get is she said, "Mum, you allow yourself to fall down or you allow yourself to have those moments where you don't carry but you don't then necessarily carry the guilt for days and I think that's just a bit of fifty two years behind this yeah, yeah. rather than rather than eighteen years. No, hundred no. um, percent.
1: I mean, the more you, you, the more we look. Well, the more I look into stuff, it's all about. People say it's not just turning up. A lot of it's turning up and doing your best, and then you know, learning from that. And you know, Pele and and some of the, the stories behind the greats, the people what we consider to be the greats who have achieved high stuff. It's the the backstories where all that detail is exists, and nobody's got these free rapid rises to whatever it is they want. um uh, it just it just does not happen. um and you know, the greatest baseball players, you know, there's the greatest cricketers, the greatest Michael Jordan. let's pull him out there. it's he's something like um yeah, three times as many missed shots as as scores, you know, so like he's only thirty percent successful. so sixty six percent of the time he's he's wrong. Yeah, he's the greatest there is, you know. So it's bizarre, yeah, you
0: know? yeah. So like the business I'm running now has had a really good year because of this recognition from the International Loyalty Awards, and it's just almost like it's all come together nicely. Just timing, right? So some someone said to me the other day, like Flipper Eck, it sounds like an overnight success, and I just laughed. It's exactly what you just said. I went, I have been slogging at this for 13 years at this company, let alone what I've done before. And for thirteen years, there's been times when I've wondered if there's cash flow to pay salaries or have I got clients coming in, or will anyone really take me seriously? or so I think no matter what it is, and please, I'm not comparing myself to the greats, far, far from it. Whatever your thing is, whatever your business or you know your sport or whatever whatever it is in life is, if it does come overnight with no work, then that that's not sustainable. You know, so I always say if you've got incredible talent and you suddenly win big because of your talent, you're going to come down fast and furious, faster than you believe it, because you haven't actually learned the ethics of hard work and determination and how to pick yourself up when it's tough, because the folks who get it easy, they will either learn quickly and work hard and carry on doing well, or they're going to fall hard and it's going to hurt more than maybe folks who didn't get it so easy and I, I really feel strongly about this that um no one in the world is an overnight success you hear i remember reading madonna's bio and she said people thought i was an overnight success after 10 years of almost having to be a strip artist in a new york new york nightclub you know that's not fun like it wasn't fun but suddenly she got the break she needed and you hear it about all the rock stars and i think the best sports people
1: 100% 100% so It's a good time to move from that then on to truth because you've already started to tell us a little bit about that. And um, look, if I could, uh, you know, I'm not jealous of you in any single way, man, but truth is the best business name that I've (laughs) ever heard. It's just the best. It's just because the truth sets you free um, as hard as it is. Um, So how did you how did you pick up that name to start with? It's a good question. Oh,
0: It's a beautiful story, actually. It's a great story. And yeah, the number of people who've asked me if they could buy the URL or when I email and they go, wow, your email address is amazing because it is truth. Um, It's not truth loyalty. It's truth. So um, Theo and I, Theo is my husband, and I were on holiday just after we got married in Mexico because I worked for the airline. We used to zoop off all over the place. And we're sitting on a beach. It in Zihuatanehu. Now, what's the significance of Zihuatanehu? You should know the Shawshank Redemption. That's the beach where they end up on the All back right. of that boat I in that le- legendary movie. I'm
1: rubbish on and but
0: yeah. So we're sitting there, and we're drinking a cold Carenza a cold beer, and Thi said to me, "Okay, so what job do you want to do when you leave British Airways?" I was in the midst of British Airways, and I said, "I don't know, but I just know." I want to run my own business. And we sat there that day and we, we came up with the name truth. We came back to England and I went online and I bought the URL for 200 quid. Someone owned it and they owned it because they had a project name called truth. And I sat on it for about five years until truth was even came up as a business. I didn't even know what the business was going to be, but I just knew it was right. So it's truth.co.za. It's not.com. Unfortunately, um, but locally, there's quite a few companies. There's a couple of other companies who are like Truth Coffee or Truth This. And they've all approached us wanting to buy this the, Truth TV. Actually, they've all approached us. We get all sorts of phone calls in our office about my subscription to Truth TV is broken. Can you help? And I'm like, no, it's nothing to do with me. Can I order some coffee? No, nothing to no, do no. with me. But um, yeah, it's a great URL. And actually, if you're in the world of loyalty, you know, like if you if you're not telling the truth, your customers won't trust you. Um, so we, we really can't we, we don't play on the word, but naturally it comes up all the time. So yeah, I'm, I'm very aware it's a fantastic URL and I'm very happy Thea and I had that cold beer on Ziwatenehu many years ago.
1: Yeah, it's a great story. and it is the name. It is just, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know what to say about it, but yeah, you wouldn't have the inquiries if um if it wasn't wasn't that. I mean, okay, so loyalty. Um, I don't think there are many people who think, oh, I'm going to be a loyalty expert. I just don't think that's, uh, okay, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a footballer, I want to be a train driver, I want to be a rock star, I want to be an accountant, whatever it is, I want to be a horticulturalist, I want my own farm, whatever. But not many people are going to say, oh, I want to be a loyalty expert. So how did that evolve or how did that come to be? Because um, you're obviously... Well, and let's not beat about the bush highly successful at it you know the industry you recognised for your work you know you're a leading light I mean isn't it I'm, let's not hide under the bushel um, where did that come from?
0: So I always knew I wanted to be in business and I always knew I loved marketing Um, and then I got on the British Airways graduate marketing program so I was very clear I think I'd seen when I was really young, like a Chanel advert with this beautiful woman walking into a boardroom with long blonde hair and have a suit on. <laughs> I don't have blonde hair and I certainly didn't look like that lady. But um, I joined British Airways. Now the airlines are the sort of founders of loyalty from the frequent flyer programs. So back in the days when American Airlines started in the 1980s. I mean, if you remember, I, I, I mean, maybe we'll chat later about a book I've just written, but I talk about when, we used to go with dad to the shell garage and he used to get the stamps filled up and we'd walk away with Coca-Cola glasses. That's loyalty, right? So it's a campaign, but it's loyalty at the end of the day because he went to shell instead of somewhere else. So I was never a loyalty expert and I was never, didn't wake up one day and become say I want to do loyalty, but the training I got at BA because FFP frequent flyer programs are so dominant in the loyalty uh, in the airline environment I just naturally did that kind of work in the airline. And a lot of the projects I worked on, a lot of the jobs I did were in that part of marketing rather than advertising for argument's sake. I never worked on the advertising marketing side. I'm also very mathematical. So I did did A-level maths and it was my best A-level result out of the three. And then at university, I did broader business, but always enjoyed more of the math side. And loyalty marketing is very... To do it well, it's very much about data and segmentation and understanding customer from their behavioral stuff, which comes from data, without crossing the boundaries of sort of privacy and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I'm not into the pretty pictures side of marketing. And those who are, I've got massive respect for because it's a creative art. This is more the science of marketing and definitely plays to my strengths and i just fell into it and then i left ba worked a bit in south africa on other projects and then ended up being head of loyalty for woolworths south africa which is like a marks and spencers in the uk a very top end retailer and i was head of the customer division which was loyalty and all the stuff that goes with it and that's really where i sort of started to specialize and then i realized there that corporate life was kind of coming to an end for me i just realized that i needed to move on and realized that the market had very little expertise so I just went deep into it and I've also learned be find your skill and be deep and be go as deep as you can and niche as you can in it generalists it's I I did generalist marketing consultancy and the world and his dog can do it and but to be deeply deeply in, in a in an industry and niche unashamedly niche and something is much more powerful yeah. Um that's i do cool. get phone calls that say can you help us on our marketing strategy and i say no but i can find you someone who can i mean i probably could help out if i really applied myself but that isn't what we do and that isn't what we're experts at there's lots of really good people who could do it instead of me
1: yeah that's right and um again man it's it sounds like an evolution um a lot of learning um the, the lessons that stand out or one of the lessons that stands out in that for anybody who's listening is that recognition that something's coming to an end, that boredom, that mm, it's not doing it anymore. It's not floating my boat. I'm I'm treading water and the need to challenge yourself and move away from a corporate salary and risk not having pounds coming in at the or dollars or quatcha or whatever it is. And then <laughs> taking that risk. Yeah. Which is where yeah, you're
0: and I remember Rob, one of the biggest learnings, it was the hardest year of my life, was leaving that corporate label because I'd worked for incredible companies. So globally, if you say you work for British Airways, um, it meant something. Like yeah, I could I go off, into yeah? any mm-hmm. I could go into any room in the travel industry and say, Hey, I'm the general manager of British Airways. People didn't actually really care what my name was. You were the general manager of British Airways. Yeah. Um when I was at Woolworths, Woolworths is a massive brand in South Africa, the very the most premium retailer here. Um, I could walk anywhere and, get, and get, you tell people you work for Woolworths and they're like, wow, what a great company. And then suddenly I lose the shackles of both of those. And I was like, I'm Amanda. Shit, who's Amanda? And I remember it was a year of real fear. And then I'll never forget working with a friend who helped me create the first website and the first business card. And he went, so what's your elevator pitch and how much are you going to charge per hour? And, and the first client I worked with, it was a remarkable man, called Mike and he just said, I'm not gonna say the company. And I I quote I pitched my work and I gave him a quote and he said, I'll take your quote as long as you add a zero to it. He just said, I've you've done work for me before. He says this is ridiculous. I was so timid and so yeah, yeah. uncertain and just so ha- yourself, yeah. undervalued and so happy to get the work. I, and he just said, I'll take your quote and you'll do what you say you'll do, but just add a zero and send it back Fine to me. <laughs> and I remember just bursting into tears going, I can't do that. And I've come to the realization that you, you, you'll you find your worth when you've got the experience. You can't find that on day one and you've got to learn those lessons. And then yeah. you don't undervalue yourself. You actually, you've got to have the guts sometimes to walk away from business if you feel it's yeah. undervaluing.
1: And uh, that powerful word, called no that that uh, can take if you don't get good at saying that for millions of reasons can lead you to hell um, if you don't Are you struggling to find that extra edge to help you stand out above the crowd? Separating yourself from the rest is often about personal leadership. Achieve your true potential and become who you really can be. The Leader Manager Coach Pro Course is a unique membership accessing the knowledge and wisdom from history's greats that will help you develop both personally and professionally to make you truly stand out. The Leader Manager Coach Pro Course. Access now at patreon.com. Leader Manager Coach. So here you are um let's let's say you've reached might not be your top of the tree, but you've certainly hit a mark with the your, your award Mandan obviously you've, you know you've you, you've achieved a, a level of success and in in your uh, business in with truth as CEO and um, so what everybody else will want to know is okay, so you've not just dropped out of corporate world and suddenly had this successful business. Tell us about a time that made you cry with tears that you're thinking this ain't going to work I can, i've made a mistake here this ain't working or something's going wrong what, what's the biggest challenge you've had
0: i think the biggest challenge of running your own business and you and i've talked about this before is you end up working in the business so you become a like in my case a loyalty consultant you don't put enough time at working on the business like growing the business so that the cash flow is right so that you Employ someone if you need to, or you look for the next client. So my early days were very much that. I was I was the consultant and running the business, and I might have had one person supporting me. And the scariest time was when I ran out of cash. There was one time in the I properly ran out of cash because of cash flow, because I don't know what it's like internationally, but certainly in this market, corporates can take 90 days to pay you. So you you bill them on the first of say, you know, April, you do the work in April. And you don't actually get paid to April, May, June till 1st of July. But you've paid your salaries. You've paid yourself, hopefully, because you've got school fees to pay. And I properly ran out of cash. And I I remember just going, I just don't know where I'm going to get the money from. I'm kind of reaching into a UK bank account that I'd had some savings from a student and tried to hope the exchange rate helped. So that was the scariest time when I thought, you know, maybe I should just go back into corporate. It's a lot easier to have a corporate salary. And I was good at it and yeah maybe I should go back into corporate and I will never forget the day when and what kind of stopped me going back into corporate I'll never forget the day when I did actually leave corporate life telling Hannah at the time she was four years old I think or six years old I drove her home from play school or whatever, and I said "Mummy's leaving work I'm going to work for myself and she just burst into tears with happiness because you know at that age the kids just want you to be available right yeah yeah the fact that now I work harder than I ever worked before is irrelevant. Like I'm less available than mm. I ever was. But, you know, if I want to pop out and pick up my kid, I just put it in my diary and I just work an hour later. So that's that experience of being a working mum is remarkable that I can do that. Like if my kid's doing something I need to be at, I'll be at it if I can. And I can plan it and work around it. And you can, as you said, the power of the word no. I can say no to people. I can say, I can't do that day. I can do tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, it was scary, Rob, at times. But fortunately, it hasn't been over the 13 years to what takes it today. I only really had one or two of those major down patches. We've been very lucky. We've, we've created a reputation that's kept it now. The team grew. I grew the business. I did sell part of the business. I went through a buyout, um, which at the time felt right. And then it wasn't right. And then during COVID, um, just business structures changed so that it meant I could buy the business back. And now I'm my own shareholder, my own manager again, which is how I prefer it. But having said that, I learned an awful lot in that buyout process. I smartened up the business. I started to do business planning better because you've got shareholders. Suddenly you've got a board board to Mm -hmm. report to. So whilst I don't report to a board because I kind of report to myself, I do think differently, which was a great learning experience and I do plan differently and I've learned flow principles better. And, you know, I take, I've kind of take things a bit more seriously and it's a bit more grown up in, in how we run the business.
1: So if it's not a silly question, um, I know this isn't about, this isn't a loyalty podcast, but I think people are interested in how people think and uh, they plan and how they see their future success. So where's truth going from here?
0: So, The consultancy will carry on, which is what I've been doing for 13 years. So you'd think I'd get bored of it by now, but I'm not because we have the best clients ever. Like sometimes we're dealing with big corporate banks and big corporate retailers. And then I'll get a phone call from a pesticide farmer in Cameroon. (laughs) And you're like, what the heck has loyalty got to do with that? But he wants to incentivize the guys who sell him, sell the pesticide, right? So it then becomes a B2B loyalty program or – And we get Italian water pumps want to learn about loyalty or so we never honestly got we get the best calls typically on a Friday, interestingly. And I find every project is as interesting as the other one, because like now we're working with a TV channel or a football club. And like it's so different and it's so exciting. And the people I meet are typically awesome people. So so I love the consultancy, but it's not sustainable to just do that. So the future of truth is very much in our training programs we have an incredible we have three incredible training programs online which have served like over 800 you know not quite 800 like over 600 people around the world in 20 different countries already and the plan is to scale that globally so i've got a few partners i'm talking to who want to take it and create a partnership we create the content why do we create the content because we're deep experts at loyalty so the target audience are either individuals running a little loyalty program or a massive loyalty program, or interestingly, the companies who serve the loyalty industry. So, all the tech companies and data companies who just speak tech and don't really understand how to speak loyalty. So, the point there is to say this course is cost effective. It's easy, not easy to do because the content's easy, but easy channel. Um, and it's the best way to get you and your team upskilled. And that's the plan is to scale that globally because we've we've half scaled it. We've played around internationally. But now we are super determined to to serve the loyalty world through brilliant training um, because it's really good training. I've got fantastic feedback. It's internationally accredited. Um, So that's the plan. But we can't do that unless we're brilliant consultants. So the consultancy work must carry on. And what I am loving about the work we're doing is we've, we are bringing together an industry. So we started off bringing together the South African industry. So we run conferences and white papers. We write that become the national loyalty white paper. So we brought together the South African loyalty industry without being an official South African loyalty body, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And now I think with this this very privileged sort of recognition i've had this year plus the trust which i'll talk i can mention to you in a moment i'm finding an energy where i'm helping to bring parts of the global loyalty industry together which is really exciting i've got calls from people saying how do we support the trust how do we do these things together which is really fabulous because actually together everyone's better right even if you're competitors there's in my view, there's no such thing as, I mean, there's dirty competition where you're at each other's throats and then there's healthy competition and actually healthy competition is better for everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just seen this thing the other day where there's a Coke machine. It was, and there was, they were get, they were vending about a hundred cans of Coke a day. And then the bloke came in who serviced the machine and next to it, they put a Pepsi machine. So he was absolutely devastated. So he went to them and said, and they said, well, we're just giving our, our people choice. It turned out the month after they were selling 200 cans of Coke and t- he assumed Pepsi Same stayed Pepsi there. Or so or like, it just yeah. gone up like double because there was competition. Like, wow. Eh? Yeah. It's
0: amazing. And I can believe it. Yeah, totally.
1: Totally. Um, and they said that, I, I, not that I know, he said the, the reason is because the internal dialogue goes something like, do I want a drink? Yes or no? Or what do I, do I want? Pepsi or do I want Coke? <laughs> not do I want a drink?
0: <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, competition. Totally. There you go. Yeah. Um, Very much so.
1: Yeah. Okay, right. There's three things I want to talk about before we finish this. One is the amazing ultra marathons that you and your love of comrades and the uh, Una Gawaja stuff that you did, and, and you know, like that amazing story, <laughs> which kind of link. And then I want to just talk about blind loyalty. Um, so let's talk about your marathons and your love of distance running and putting yourself through. What most people, even elite sports people, go, oh my, I could never do that. So, um, tell us a story of all that.
0: So, I've never been a runner until like this era of my life. I used to hate it. I remember I used to go running at Loughborough to try and get a bit fitter because you can't be in a Loughborough squad if you're lazy bones. I mean, I hated it. But um, so I've never been a runner. But I remember after I was pregnant with Katie, who's your goddaughter. I was seriously overweight. I picked up thirty kilos, and she popped out at three kilos. <laughs> I remember <Yeah>. the guy. <laughs> the guy and he used to look at me every week, going, "You're probably eating for four there," and all the gump that comes out, you know, after the pregnancy, after the birth, and then I got home and I was like twenty-two kilos overweight, and I I'd been working with a personal trainer before. I I was right up to birth, actually, you taught me, I was doing like shadow boxing and stuff. So we always expected Katie to pop out a boxer. (laughs) And honestly, I was properly overweight. And I said, listen, I've got six months maternity leave. I need to lose every one of these 22 kilos before I go back to work. And he just went, you ain't got a chance, love, unless you start running. I I can't run. So we had a treadmill and I literally started like five minute walk. And then five minute walk, one minute, one minute run. And honest to God, it, it started like that. And I had so much respect for people who ran. I just sort of was like, this is hell. And that's how most people feel about running, because it is hell. Even now, after doing ultra marathons, if I back off for three months, which doesn't happen anymore, but and you go back in for a two k run, it's hell. Running um, Lottie, running's one of those things that is properly like unforgiving, and properly rewarding. So. So basically, I built myself up to a 10k. And then South Africa's got this extreme mentality, Robin, you and I've talked about this, you've said often you get recreational athletes coming in, and they dream one day of running a half marathon, and maybe a lesser percentage dream of doing one marathon in their lifetime. South Africa is like, oh, you run marathons. Ah, oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's because it's the home of the longest standing ultra marathon in the world. It's the most famous ultra marathon called Comrades. Anyway, before Comrades came onto my reckoning, I remember doing half marathons and enjoying them actually. And then, out of the mouth of a babe, Hannah said to me, my daughter, Mom, why do you only do halves? Like, <laughs> how far is a full? <laughs> and I was 42 years old and I said to her, it's 42 kilometers she says well you need to do 42 kilometers while you're still 42 and that's how it started so when your daughter says that i kind of did stop and go and this was in the april and my 43rd was in october so i checked out the diary and i saw there was a marathon in september cape town marathon and i trained for it and that was my first marathon at the age of 42 And then as I was training for it as long, as soon as I got past the 25k mark, so when you train for your first 42, you typically, so obviously in the UK, you say 26.2, I think it is. You typically get up to about 30 kilometers. You don't have to go more than that. I mean, some people say you should. And as I got further into the training, when I ran the first 30k, I remember saying to my training buddy, oh, I'm going to do Comrades she just looked at me. We were dead. We were dead on our feet. It's the furthest we've ever been. And she says, but that's three times what we've just done. And I said, I know, I just love it. So the first 42 I did, I remember getting to 41 kilometers, hardly any hassle at all. I go slow. Don't get me wrong. I'm a plodder. Like you You did your marathons when you were a youngster. And I think you did them in half the time. I do them. But I got to 41 kilometers and then I hit the wall <laughs> at 41, 1k to go. And I stopped and I said, I can't do it. And she just looked at me and she'd had three or four meltdowns before we got there. And I pulled her through (laughs) and I got there to 41. And she said, I said, that's it. I can't do it. She just looked at me. She's you're flipping kidding me. And then obviously I got past the line and then I trained for comrades, which was not sensible because it was my first 42 in the September. And then I did a 56 ultra, which is called two oceans in April and I was broken a million tiny little pieces. And I put myself back together and then did comrades in the June, so in less than nine months, I went from a forty to first forty-two to comrades, which is not recommended. If I could look back, I should have taken a bit longer to get a bit more
1: time so on I'm the legs. You. let's dive in. Have a
0: go. <laughs> let's dive in. Have a go. So, so, and then I just had the love for comrades. So, what happens? Anyone who's done comrades will know exactly mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. It is called the ultimate human race. It is an emotional. 12 hour cut off it cuts you off at 12 hours you get people who've run for 12 hours and they're 12 hours one second and they don't complete comrades the winner the male winner typically does it in like 5 20 i think female winner six hours like so uh, it's just an experience but it's not just 90 kilometers it's 90 kilometers through the most brutal hills of south africa it's and it was brought about by um a gentleman called Vic Clapton who wanted to honor the fallen comrades of the first world war so it's got an incredible history Mm. if anyone's interested in seeing how sport follows history and actually you know what it brings together the very very best of South Africans. South Africa is a complicated place as you know with a complicated political history and racial history but on that start line of comrades it doesn't matter what skin color you are it doesn't matter what money you've got in the bank account you're all standing there crying singing the national anthem singing chariots of fire facing potentially 12 hours of pleasure and pain ahead of you but if you've completed the comrades marathon you've gone to a place that you will never regret nobody
1: else who doesn't do it will ever understand
0: you'll never understand it and you'll never regret it
1: It's beautiful yeah enough said no listen um yeah absolutely and I know how much you love it because you keep doing it. And um, I think when you did your first one, we were like, we were on the phone or we were, we were waiting for updates off the o like every 20 minutes now. Like <laughs> we don't even bother now. We're just like, oh, do another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Next. So that's, you know, you've know, done that Mom, I
0: remember mum got pissed off with me. She was like, you're going to kill yourself. I was like, okay, well then I'll die happy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just like you, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. So i got to talk about Look, the last couple of years for you, again, you've been to places that none of us could could imagine. Um, you sent me a message one Saturday morning, maybe. Um, been swimming, rubbed my eye, something's not right, and then the story carries on from there. Um, look, I'll I'll preempt it by saying it is the closest example in in uh, from somebody that I know and love that of making. The absolute best and more than the best out of a terrible situation or what appears to be a terrible situation is the archetypical story of this is a disaster that can ruin my life. And you not single handedly, but yes, single handedly, because it's your decision that created that into something that's we don't know how far it will go in terms of the love and, and the benefits that it will bring. Um, so let's talk about that story, um, which will lead us on to um, I want to talk about your book before we finish. So tell us that story, man.
0: Yeah. So, oh, Rob, I'm feeling quite emotional, actually, when you said that on the 9th of March, in the, on the 8th of March last year, I had a normal day. I went for a run with my best mate. It was a birthday and I went to bed at night. And on the 9th of March, in the middle of the night, I woke up and sat on the edge of the bed and scrunched my eye. And then the whole day I was like, what's going on? Like this, ow, I've hurt my eye. Anyway, I just thought I'd over-scratch my eye. Long story short, I had three months thereafter of the most terrifying ordeal of my life. So it pro- for the first time ever, I've been grounded to a halt. I was in bed for three months. I had this weird, rare and resistant fungus had made its way into my eye. We don't know where it's come from. We don't know how it happened. Called Fusarium keratitis. And it took them... A long time to find out what it was because your eye is not an easy thing to treat so it took me a while to find the right surgeon because it I couldn't I didn't know where to go I was with someone who then said you need to see the best in the country but I'm sorry he's never available he's so busy and I was like oh great and then eventually the best in the country said sure this is terrible let me help and I got to see the doctor I'm going to remain he's going to remain anonymous he hates being mentioned so um Long story short, I had this thing called fusarin keratitis, and his in his career, he's a similar age to me. He's only treated four people, and he says you're you're kind of up there at the top of the worst in Europe alone last year. I think there were less than a hundred cases, and basically, I had to have two corneal emergency corneal transplants. Corneas being flown in from Florida, you know, organ donors. And he basically said he was preparing to have the discussion with me of how to give me a glass eye to save my eye. It was an eye saving experience, but it wasn't that it was the pain was so extreme, Rob, you know, I used to phone you in tears and I couldn't, I would eat a packet of myPradol, which is like ibuprofen a day. And like, I'm not a junkie kind of thing. I could not get rid of the pain. Eventually he put me on schedule six painkillers. He didn't want to because of the addiction to them within a week I felt they were addictive so I pulled myself off them and within a week this is what's so terrifying about painkillers within a week I pulled myself off them and I had withdrawal symptoms within a week of being on them I was like thank god I'm off these things like it was terrifying so I learned a lot about all that kind of stuff eventually the pain went away because the second cornea transplant soft you know I had internal drugs I had injections in the eye I, he tried everything to save my eye but what happened at the end of it the cornea transplant was a success but my eye was destroyed inside like destroyed and i couldn't see a thing out of it but i had extreme light sensitivity because the fungus had forced my pupil wide open the iris was damaged so i had to wear a patch for 14 months so i kind of looked a bit like a pirate it was my standard joke um and during all of this i'm in south africa you you either have private medical insurance or you don't like the NHS doesn't exist for example there, there is government medical care but basically in my case what they would have done is not be able to treat me so I would have screamed and shouted because the pain was so extreme and they would have cut my eye out I'm not joking so so during all of this ordeal whilst being covered by private medical care for a Florida for a cornea to be flown over from Florida at the drop of a hat there were certain drugs that I couldn't get under insurance that I had to find five thousand pounds for at the drop of a hat otherwise this thing wasn't going away so you just find a way right I don't know how but we just found a way we borrowed and we begged and I just used to think to myself what if I was someone in a township right now Who is making good with my life for my kids and me? And this happened to me because there's no reason why it happened to me versus Tom, Dick, or Harry. And I used to talk to the doctor about it, and he said, Yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. So he does a lot of pro bono work already, but he said he can't go as far as he needs to every time because he can cover his own time, but he can't cover the hard costs. So we we collectively but he i kind of had to really say to him come do this because you're already doing pro bono work and he's terrified of the extra work because he's so busy but as you said don't it's no extra work for you i just need to harness your pro bono work but find a way of funding the hard costs, so that if someone is like me but can't afford you and can't afford the private cornea flown in from florida we have a trust that can so we formed blind loyalty trust the name i can give credit to my husband blind loyalty and through the trust we raise funds through the loyalty industry and through by doing it that way we are able to fund so we've i've spent the first year of it it's a bit less than a year now finding enough funds to be able to now start to offer the surgery i don't do the surgery obviously (laughs) the doctor does And we're now finding the right patients to to help. He's got a list of folks he knows needs help. Um, It has to be in the corneal transplant. That's where he's his expertise. And there's no shortage of people who need help. So the reason we've not gone ahead, even though we've got enough money, is what if they're a problem patient like me? You can't just have enough money to do one of the transplants. What if they need three? So we've had to make sure we've collected a crap load of money before we can take on a patient because you can't abandon a patient midway
1: yeah, Halfway through.
0: so yeah exactly so so that's what the blind loyalty trust does but i'm mm. not begging for money although a lot of people generously donated to support me running comrades this year sure with one eye but um i've basically created a force of movement with the loyalty industry. So in the loyalty industry, for example, if any of you know anything about loyalty or use loyalty programs, you have a pot of points possibly in your loyalty program, and you can either spend those points on 20 20 quid off at Tesco's, or whatever, or a lot of these companies donate points to charity. So a lot of the way I'm trying to raise funds globally and locally in South Africa is to persuade those companies to give the choice of donating your points to blind loyalty. So the points pay for the real money that comes into the trust. So you as a user might go, sure, this, this charity is about blindness and my granny died and she was blind and it was miserable. I'm gonna give my points to charity. And it's actually much more sustainable than going knocking right. on the door saying, can you give a hundred quid towards this charity? We also do other cool stuff like create nice bracelets and the profit from them go to the trust. and there's other ways we make money but that's kind of the thrust of it and we're now in a position where we're ready to start the procedures so um
1: you must be so pleased with that so proud of that man gotta be
0: i can't wait though to meet. i can't wait i can't imagine the emotion i'm going to feel when we meet the first meet people who person, we, yeah. we save yeah so because i promise you living with impaired sight is properly crap it's like it's awful You know, I used to bump into, like, and I had one one eye that worked. So even just with one eye out was, and I say was, because I've had further surgery and this doctor I'm talking about is a magician. He has taken away all the cataracts. I mean, cataract surgery is common. It's not complicated. So that was the easy part, but he had to rebuild my eye entirely. He's put in a new lens. He's, and he's just can't believe actually that the back of my eye was never damaged because the fungus was so bad. And now I can see it's just a miracle. I'm not wearing the patch anymore. So he can't believe believe it because he believed in himself, but he knew a million things could have gone wrong Um, and it didn't. And I'm so grateful. I'm so eternally grateful to him. And yeah, it's just, it's one of those stories that if you told me this two years ago, I wouldn't have believed it can happen to anyone, let alone me. hmm. And then in the middle of it, if you told me that you will actually be able to see next August or September, I would have gone How is that possible? But it is. So for all of us out there, whatever your medical situation is, and also, sorry, just before I say that, what I was about to say, then I'm really healthy. Like I look after myself, I run ultra marathons and, you know, this, Rob, we were trying to do some work together, which required us collectively to sign a life policy. I suddenly went from being the healthiest person, one of the healthiest people I know to someone who you couldn't even get a life policy on. They wouldn't touch me. Yeah, and yeah. that's get you know so suddenly we can't none of us can take our health for granted yeah. because I woke up on the ninth of March last year and my life changed dramatically so I have lost the train of thought what I was going to say before that but it doesn't matter um our health is important but you actually are not actually always in control of it and I'm if sure. you're not um good things can still yeah, come yeah. out of the most dire situation um yeah and actually the irony is, and I know you said you wanted to talk about the book, the irony is because I couldn't read, I couldn't bear light. So even the lowest setting of light on your phone, when I was in that three month darkness, metaphorically and literally, mm-hmm. all I could do is listen to audio books. So I listened to a load of audio books and then I got fed up of listening to all this self-motivation. I was like, enough now, I just need some light distraction. And then... um I've been meaning to write a book on loyalty for 10 years, probably. And all my colleagues every year, when I set my goals, you know, we set the goals in January, they go, is your book on your list? And I go, yeah. And then instead of getting up to write my book, I used to get up and run and train for comrades. So the book always got trumped by comrades training. Yeah. And then and then eventually I got to a point where I was like, who wants to read a book on loyalty? What's the point? Like, honestly, yeah, yeah. who wants to read a book on loyalty? I'm in loyalty and I don't want to read a book on loyalty. <laughs> that's how I used to think. So I kind of put it off and kind of almost wrote it off. And then it came to me in the darkness of how I needed to write this book on loyalty. And that's what I've done. So it came to me that instead of writing a book on loyalty, I was going to write this concept of just take, because loyalty is complicated for marketing professionals. It isn't e- It isn't that easy unless you kind of break it down into component parts so I've broken it down into 101 component parts, and it's called blind loyalty, 101 loyalty concepts radically simplified. Because at truth, we radically simplify the complexity of loyalty for our clients. So we've got a two pages per 101 concepts, no more. And I asked a lot of people to contribute to the book, professionals around the world who I believe are much more experienced in the deeper in a particular niche part of loyalty. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard for them to keep it to two less pages. than two pages. Mm. So so yeah, that's now ready. It's alive and yeah. It's on Amazon. Um, not quite yet. I'm still in that process. So it's on AmandaCromhote.com. Um, the digital and the audio book, and the physical book is still in South Africa. So obviously the next stage will be for me to get physical books on Amazon and so forth. But com is where you can find any stuff about me, but the book and on a digital and audio mm. uh, version, and and more importantly, sorry, the proceeds of the book, all the che- all the profit from the book go to the trust. Beautiful. So That's I don't, beautiful. I don't, I don't personally benefit one cent from it, other than seeing my face on the front of a book, <laughs> maybe seeing it in the bookstore. Um, but no, a hundred percent of the profits go to the trust.
1: Oh, beautiful. So we've traversed the positives and not so many negatives many of the positives of how an early life kind of made you be a jumper in and uh fake it till you make it and give it a go um to <laughs> grab in all opportunities um that stepped across your path to be an understanding have an understanding mind about when it's time to move or jump or swim or change direction. To uh, embracing what you love, particularly with your ultra marathons and, uh, and having an understanding of what you're good at and, and digging deep into that so that you can follow kind of all what you were given by the universe um, and making the most of all our gifts, which um, is a common theme. Um, and I think you do that so, 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 so well. And just, you know, ending up with turning a terrible challenge or a beautiful challenge into an amazing ending that hasn't ended yet but um has got kind of a conclusion to it Um so here's to the next bit sis oh and, uh, thanks
0: Rob thanks that's
1: why I wanted you on the podcast so
0: um, that's a privilege thank you thank for you.
1: Uh, sharing your life with us and um you know um, being me being able to share it with the listeners as well as keeping it to myself so
0: no, Rob, it's an absolute privilege. You and I spend hours and hours talking about philosophy and the meaning of life. So it's great to actually formalize it a little bit. So thank you. It's a real privilege.